Good morning, Risen Hope. Uh, I miss you all very much, and I hope that you're doing well this Lord's Day. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 35. John 1, 35. And as you do that, I'm just going to ask God for help this morning. Heavenly Father, um, you are here with us. No matter where we are in Kingsgate, no matter where we are um, across the greater Seattle area or even in the world right now, you are with us. Your spirit is here. And um, <clears throat> you know that the greatest need that we have um, is not a superficial need. It is the deepest possible need. We need to hear from you. We don't need to hear from a man. We don't need to hear another voice. We need to hear your voice clearly speaking through your word. And so I pray right now, Father God, that you would come be with us, be with every individual and family that is listening and worshiping today with us. And may you magnify your name in the things that we see in this text. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. So John uh, chapter 1, uh, we're going to read verse 35 through 42. So here's the text. It says, The next day John, the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, <clears throat> and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So, this is a, a, a seemingly innocuous uh, passage, just a, a, a little glimpse, a brief look at a, a moment in Jesus' life. That's what it seems to be, just a short story. And uh, it comes across as an account, a, a relatively mundane account that just sits between the exciting elements of the Gospel of John, like the miracles and, and Jesus' controversial statements. And we might look at this passage and be tempted to think, Hey, this is a, a, a safe, harmless, biographical account of an event that happened in, in Jesus' life. That's all this is. But if we did that, <clears throat> we would be wrong. Um, first, there is, I mean, there's nothing safe at all in the Bible. If we have eyes to see, every passage is potentially dangerous. And this one is no different. It invades the lives of everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. When we come to the Bible <clears throat> with an open heart, we will find that in some way, shape, or form, every single text can infiltrate our lives with the explicit purpose of changing them. And so this one is no different today. And so <clears throat> as we look at this particular passage today, 
we're going to start to see questions rise up in the text. And these are not comfortable questions. They're challenging questions, really. They were challenging for me all this week in preparation. And so let me just humbly ask this of, of you and of myself, that as we see these questions surface in this story about what it means to follow Jesus, that we would ask the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and that he would change any areas of our lives that need to be changed. So pray that with me as we go through this passage, that you and I both would have a, a kind of holy discontentment for anything in our lives that keep us from following Jesus in the way that we must follow him, in the way that we're called to do that. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, John, the author of this book, is going to show us what it means in this passage. And so this story begins with John the Baptist, who, who you know, if you've been with us the last few weeks, has been proclaiming the Christ to the people of Israel. He's standing with two of his disciples. And John's been teaching about the Christ. He's been preaching about the Messiah, the Lamb of God, for some time right now, but only recently has he attached that prophetic title to a, a real human being who is alive right then, and that man is Jesus of Nazareth. And here, two of his disciples are standing by him. One of them is revealed to be Andrew. The other one, uh, most scholars believe, is actually the author of the book, John. We don't know for sure because he's not mentioned. This is his MO anyways. Um, and they're standing next to John the Baptist, and uh, when Jesus walks by, it says that John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which is something you recall from the last two weeks that he's already said this. He said this in verse 29. But when he says it now, it incites something. It says the two disciples leave John, and they begin to follow Jesus which is no problem to John the Baptist. This is the entire purpose of his ministry, to bring people to the Christ. So John the Baptist knows he's not the light, which we saw in verse 8 of this same chapter. He is a witness to the light. And therefore, this is a brilliant picture of his ministry doing exactly what God had intended it to do. And so these two disciples are, are physically following Jesus, and Jesus here turns around, <clears throat> excuse me, he sees them and he asks them a question. He says, what are you seeking? And on the surface, this is a, seems like it's just a trivial, common question. It's not a really significant question, but this question is actually of massive significance because it will tell Jesus why it is they are following him. What is it that they're looking for? What is it ultimately that they are after? Because there is a way that you can follow Jesus that is superficial and that does not seek him at all. That's why this question is so critical because it, it penetrates the facade of superficial Christianity and goes directly to the heart. We can say and we can do many Christian things. We can confess Christian doctrines with our mouths, and we can even follow Christian rules with our lives, and yet still be seeking something other than Christ. Listen to this passage from Matthew 7. This is Jesus talking. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He says, I never knew knew you. And he can say that because there is a a Christian-like way we can live completely disconnected from the only pursuit that matters in the world, seeking Jesus. Do we actually desire and seek and long for Jesus, or are we only interested in what he can give us? This is why Jesus asked the question, And so these men answer him this way. They say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and you will see. Now, what's interesting in this story is that although they've asked where he's staying, and although verse 39 will tell us they actually see where he's staying, John never mentions where it is Jesus is actually staying in the story. Now, why not? Well, the reason is because where Jesus is physically staying is not important to them at all. They're not interested in the geographical location of where he's staying. They desire him. They're seeking him, and they just want to be near him. So where it is he physically lives is of no consequence to them, And we see this clearly in what happens in the next few verses. Jesus invites them, come and see. The text says it was about the 10th hour, which is 4 p.m., which means they got there at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, and they stayed with him that day. So we can conceive of them staying the entire day until the next morning. They stayed with Jesus. They sought Jesus and they stayed with him, which brings up another relevant question, I think, for anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. And it's this, do we stay with him? Do we stay with Jesus? Do we seek him out and then stay with him? Is that a a priority in our lives? And we might be tempted to say, well, Jeremy, if he was physically here like he was there, of course I would stay with him. Um, But he's not. He's not. And what physically is here are my kids or the emails in my inbox or um, the fact that I've got work or tasks or calls and the list goes on and on and on. And I would just humbly suggest that the lack of Jesus physically being in the room is not the main problem with that equation. It's not. We can see Jesus with greater clarity and greater glory in the Bible than his own disciples could when they were sitting right across from him. Because through Scripture, all of God's inspired words, and through the Holy Spirit, we can understand who he was, really who he was, and why he came with more vivid clarity than when he physically walked the earth. This is not a physical problem. This is a spiritual problem. We have, as children of God, unfettered access to Jesus Christ. And in a way, even though he's not physically with us, in a way, he is more real and present right now in our world than he has ever been. And yet, it's easy for our Bibles 
and for our prayer life to go neglected. And I, I know, I know that life pulls us in every different direction. I, I've got two kids, I've got two jobs, I have tons of email, just like you, I'm sure, tons of tasks in a given day. But here's one thing I do know, and it's this. None of that, as good and as right as those things are, are more important than staying with Jesus. None of it. In fact, I cannot even properly do all of those things in the way that I ought to without staying with Jesus, without seeking him in the scriptures, without going to him in prayer, not just for like five minutes because he's another task on a list of things to do, but because I I want to hear from him. And and I want to pray because, not just because I'm supposed to, it's the Christian thing to do, but because I really want to tell him about my life, tell him what I need today, tell him that I want to be there as his disciple to show other people him. I want that reality. And so the question is, are we staying with Jesus or is he just another task, another thing to do on a list? And I think it's easy, especially like right now in the current season where we're in the middle of this pandemic, we have to stay at home. I think it's easy to have a a kind of self-pity about our situation and just make a beeline to entertainment or to recreation. And um, we're trying to compensate for some of the frustration we have because we can't go out. And those things are not necessarily bad things. I mean, hear me in that, they're not. But we can't afford as followers of Jesus Christ to miss the main thing. The single greatest need of our lives is to stay with Jesus, to spend time with him. And in this passage, these, the very first disciples show us that we need to stay with Jesus. That from the very moment they meet him, they are staying with him. And, and so they, they do this, and then look at what happens next. Something happens when we stay with Jesus. And verse 41 is going to shine a light on that. Verse 41 tells us that Andrew first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. Now, is that, is that not amazing? He, he stayed with Jesus, and then literally the first thing he does, the first thing he has on his mind is, I've got to tell my brother. I've got to tell Simon. We have found the Messiah. We found him. And so, so get this, the result, that the picture that we get here in this text is the result of staying with Jesus, of being with him, is the desire to tell other people about him. That's the, that's the effect. The effect of staying with Jesus on this man, Andrew, is that he wants to share the news about Jesus with other people. So it, is that true about us? It, 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 are we like Andrew in this circumstance? And I think someone might object, and this is a fair objection, and say, uh, well, Jeremy, there Andrew is a first century Jew in the middle of Palestine under the Roman Empire. Of course, he's going to tell his brother about it. They were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for him. They were waiting for him. And so this is a completely different context than the one we live in. And I would agree it is very different than the one we live in. But in what way? At least they were looking for the Messiah. How much more urgent is this message in a culture that doesn't even know they need him? 
we have an entire world who should be looking for the Christ. And yet they're not. They don't realize that they have a desperate need for a Savior. If anything, what Andrew does in this scene is more important now than it has ever been. Think just objectively about who they found, who this person is, Jesus, the Christ. He is the one through whom they were created. He is the one for whom every single human being was made to know and to love. And even more than that, as John the Baptist said, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he did that by dying on a cross, crushed under the just wrath of God for our sins in order that we would be with him forever. (laughs) The effect of being in the presence of that man, Christ Jesus, having sought him and having stayed with him is an impassioned urgency to tell other people, we have found the Messiah. We have found him. And uh, I'm just going to be honest with you. This is very different from the evangelistic methodology that (laughs) I tend to passively employ. I don't know, you Maybe you feel the same way about this, which is just waiting for an opportunity for, for me to bring up going to church or bring up some Christian thing and see if I can have a conversation that way. And if I can just be real with you, I'm tired of waiting for opportunities. I am tired of waiting for opportunities. Not that it's wrong to do that, but, um, and I know, like we, we know that, that bringing up Jesus in every single conversation evangelistically is not always the right thing or the most helpful thing to do, but it's probably relevant for most conversations. Maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit doesn't need to open a door for us to talk about Jesus. Maybe the Holy Spirit desires for us to kick down a door to talk about Jesus because another person's eternal soul depends on it. I mean, I'm struck by how often the early church did not pray for things like physical safety or for protection from being shamed by their culture or by the people that were around them and how often they prayed for unashamed, bold witnessing without fear. Andrew, right when he leaves Jesus' presence, goes and tells his brother, we have found the Messiah. And not only that, it says he brings Simon to Jesus in verse 42. He's not just content to talk about Jesus. He desires to bring Simon to see this man for himself. And I think this begs another question. Do we bring people to Jesus? Do we show Jesus to people? And and what I mean is this, like, do we show people Jesus in the scriptures? Do we show people Jesus in our own lives? And um, are we bringing them, people that are in our lives, to Jesus? And I don't, even though this is fine, I don't just mean bringing them to church. You can't do that now. But (laughs) I don't just mean bringing them to church or sharing something on Facebook or Instagram. Those are all fine and good. I mean taking somebody by the hand and saying, I want to show you someone that you need to see. I want you to see him the way that I see him. And if you do see him like I see him, everything in your life will change. 
everything will change. He is just simply that awesome and that great. And so the question is, what happens when we bring people to Jesus? What would happen if we do what Andrew does here and we bring someone to Jesus? Well, what we will find throughout the entire book of John is that a variety of things happen. Um, Many people over the course of the Gospel of John will see Jesus face to face. They will see him personally. But most of them will walk away unimpressed. John 1.11 tells us he came to his own and his own did not receive him. John 6.26, after the the miracle with the bread and the 5,000, it says they pursued him and Jesus tells him, you don't want me, you just want to be fed. You just want food from me. They wanted something from him. They did not want him. And then in John (coughs) 19.14, at the very end of the book, Pilate shows Jesus to the religious leaders, behold your king. And they see him and their response is crucify him. We want him dead. But look at what happens here in this scene with Andrew and Simon in John 1.42. What did Simon see when he saw Jesus? Well, John doesn't tell us what Simon saw. John only tells us what Jesus saw. Look at verse 42. It says, Jesus looked at him. We don't know what Peter saw. We only know what Jesus saw. Jesus looks at Peter and then tells him, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is the Aramaic rendering of the word rock. In the Greek, it's Petros, which is where we get the word Peter. That's why he's called Simon Peter. And so Jesus sees Simon and he gives him a new name. He's saying, listen, I I know what the world has called you. He lists off his, his earthly name. I know what the world has called you, but what matters most isn't what they call you. What matters most is what I call you. Which tells us something amazing about what it means to encounter Jesus in this way. What is most decisive in an encounter with Jesus isn't first what we think of him, but what he thinks of us. And and I don't mean that Jesus saw something intrinsically special in Peter that he didn't see in these other people that we just mentioned. That's not at all what I mean here. What I mean is this. Though there was nothing special in Jesus, Jesus looks at Peter and he calls forth a reality from him that had never existed before. You shall be called Cephas, the rock. And then it's true. (laughs) That's who he is. The decisive force in the life of Peter right here isn't his personal assessment of Jesus, but rather what Jesus does in him. He speaks into Peter's soul and Peter is changed. Now, don't get me wrong. There's ups and downs, but we know that he's changed because we get glimpses of it throughout all of the book of John. John 6, 67, for example. Listen to this scene. People are leaving Jesus in droves. Jesus has just said some very radical things, and they are leaving. And so it says here in John 6, 67, So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter, same Simon here in John 1, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus answers them and says, 
Did I not choose you, the 12? Did I not choose you, Jesus says. He doesn't mean, man, I picked the best people in the world. That's not at all the point right here. Jesus made them what they were. He chooses people who are lost and broken and then makes them into what they become by speaking, just as Peter says here, the words of eternal life into their broken, darkened hearts. Did I not choose you, he says. Did I not choose you? Listen, when we, when we first came to Jesus, when you first came to Jesus, if you really trust him right now and, and you are his follower, when you first did that, he saw us completely. There, there wasn't a single thing that was hidden from his sight. Not, not a single thought, not a single word, not a single sin. But what mattered most in that moment wasn't what we had done, and it wasn't who we were, but rather what he would make us into. That's what mattered most ultimately. Ephesians 2.10 tells us clearly, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What matters isn't what you think about yourself. What matters is what Christ knows that he's going to do in you and through you. The Christian life is about becoming what you already are, what he's already called out of you in that encounter and what we are is precisely what this passage has shown us from front to back. And, and so I just want to, as we turn the corner on this uh, message, I just want us to ask these three questions. Do you seek, do we seek Jesus? Do we stay with Jesus? And do we bring people to Jesus? This is the Christian life. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus. And all of what we talked about this morning is built on the foundation of not what we have done or ever will do, but rather on what he's already done for us. To seek Jesus is not to earn something from him. To stay with Jesus is not to, to, to get something from him in return. All of those things are a pursuit of him. Even bringing people to Jesus is to see a greater glory in his work of redemption in somebody else's life that we didn't see before. All of it is a pursuit of him, and that pursuit is a pursuit of true and lasting joy. The glorious thing about the Christian life, about the Christian person, is that our Savior isn't just the way we get saved, he is the one we are saved for. He is the goal. <laughs> he is the purpose. He is the end. He's not just the means to the end. He's both means and end. And so when Jesus asks us, what are you seeking? When he turns and asks us, what are you seeking? The answer is very simple. You. We are seeking you. Where are you staying? Can we see where you're saying we want to be with you today? And Jesus would respond to us if he was here, and he is here in spirit. He would respond to us and say just what he said to the two disciples. Come, and you will see. It is an invitation to stay with Jesus, not just, not just for five minutes, 
not just if I have time, but as if my life depends on it, as if he really is my treasure and staying with him is the most important thing in the universe I could do, not just for us, but for everyone around us. And I know, I'm just going to say, like, I know this is tough given some of our schedules, especially now that we're working from home and we're, we're all in our own houses and there's just, it's difficult and there's demands on our lives. But we need to trust God that he will make time for every necessary thing as we make time for him. We have to trust him with this. His word to us every day is come and you will see come and you will see. I mean, Jesus tells us in Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and him with me. Jesus in this passage is knocking and he is saying, come and stay with me for a little while. And when we do that, when we we see him, out of that seeing, just like with Andrew, we have a passion, a desire to show him to other people, to bring other people to him that he's brought into our lives. You and I have found in Christ Jesus the very one for whom every soul was made. There is no one else like him. He is the Lamb of God who gave his life so that he could look into the deadness of our heart and call up out of that deadness new life that had never existed before. Jesus here looked at Peter and and, and despite all of his innumerable failures, and and I I think I can relate to, to innumerable failures plenty, maybe you can, looked at all of those things And despite them, he doesn't get despondent. He isn't concerned. He's not worried about any of those things at all. He tells Peter, and what he's telling us, all of us in this text, is I know what the world has called you. I know how you see yourself, but what matters is what I call you. And I'm going to call you something different. You belong to me. And if I can just be real with you, like, what? what Jesus says about you is the only thing that really matters. It's the only thing that really matters. He is the one calling the shots. And all of what we've seen today of seeking him and staying with him and bringing people to him is only possible because of the cross of Christ. There is nothing in the Christian life. There is no benefit of being a follower of Jesus Christ. The Christian life that we've called to including everything that we've talked about today that has not been provided for us by the blood of Jesus Christ through his sacrifice, the sacrifice he made for his people. And so in a few moments, uh, Mackenzie and Nikki are, are going to return and they're going to play another song. And during that song, you will have an opportunity, as we do every week, to participate in your home, in your apartment, with your family, on your own, in the Lord's Supper, which is a, a picture of the cross. And the cross is signified, as you know, in the elements, the the bread being his body and the cup being his blood. And the only reason any of what I've said this morning is possible, 
The only reason that it is not only possible, that, but that God is doing it in us right now through the word is because of what happened on the cross. And so as we take these elements, we ask God to work in our hearts to bring these realities into fruit into fruition, that we would seek Jesus with our lives, that we would stay with him in prayer, in worship, in his word, and that we would bring people to see with him. We ask God, as we worship him, we ask God to press into our souls exactly what was purchased by the blood of his son. And then we trust him and we obey. We, we, we seek and we stay, and we bring. And all of those things belong to us as followers and disciples of Jesus Christ, not because of something we've done, but because of everything that he has done on the cross of Christ. So pray with me and join me as we take communion in asking God for these realities to become present in our lives. Heavenly Father, it is impossible impossible for anything that we have seen or happen right or seen or, or or engaged today in the scriptures to actually occur and happen in our lives without your gracious hand it is impossible it will not happen and so when we come to you we we are asking sincerely pleading with you father god by your gracious will that you would open our hearts and weave into them habits of grace where we are constantly pursuing Christ in every aspect of our lives, in, in, in every day of our life, Father God, that we are s- staying with Jesus, your Son, enjoying his presence in the Word and in prayer, and that we are actively bringing people to him, to, to see him, and even more than that, that Jesus would speak over them the words of eternal life and cultivate in them a heart that desires to seek him just like us. I pray that you would work that out in our lives, Father God. Good works that were prepared beforehand that we should walk in, him, walk in them are already ours by the cross of Jesus Christ. Help us to be these people, to become what you've already called us to be. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.